Hello and welcome to the Football Grad Podcast. My name is Manu Beth and I'm joined today by Andrew Flint in Siberia. How are you doing, Andrew? Uh, not doing too badly, Manu. Thanks very much. Um, I'm trying to distract myself from some rather distressing local football news here. And uh, of course, we're not going to go into that today. We're going to stick to the big issues, which um, for once I'm quite happy to do. So looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lots to cover today. Um, had a little bit of gap in recording and we'll get to the reason for that in just a moment. But before we do that, I, I want to uh, welcome Tim on the show. And Tim, um, a bit of a time gap between us because I'm in Munich and you are in Vancouver. How is it on the West Coast? It's amazing. It's finally summer here. You're missing that rare uh, bit of summer in Vancouver. So yeah, uh, very excited to be here. I'm still happy that Spartak is champion. Makes me happy to say that just one more time. Uh, but yeah, very excited for the part today. Uh, I'm pretty sure we'll hear about Spartak being champion uh, for for the next little while until at least uh, it happens again. I can say that. Yeah, absolutely. You're the champion and champions are always right. Um, but for those of us who are joining us on the podcast, we have, of course, run this podcast for about six or seven months now, but we've changed. Uh, we had a little bit of a change. This podcast used to run with the World Football Index and... We have decided to part ways. Uh, we want to thank the World Football Index for everything that they have done to make this show, put the show on its feet and, um, you know, help us start up. But we have since uh, decided to go our own way and run the show on the Football Grad Network as part of the Anfield Index um, app and channels. So, um, you know, this is a bit of a new beginning. So if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we'll be covering lots of things. I mean, we'll cover the entire post-Soviet space on this channel, but, you know, today, or for the most part, it's, it's Russian football. But, uh, and, you know, as we're moving on, there will be some other content. I know Vadim Formanov, uh, our Ukraine specialist, will be on soon, too. So there's always lots of interesting content on this pod. But, you know, there's been tons going on since we were last on, um, especially in Russia, or involving Russians, because... Before we get into the Russian Football Premier League, a man who, you know, Andrew, you and I have covered a lot, Leonid Slutsky, the former head coach of CSKA Moscow, and of course the head coach of the, you know, let's call it the debacle at the European Championships last summer for the Russian national team. Um, mm -hmm. He is heavily linked with a move to Hull City. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a surprise at all to see him linked heavily and well on the verge of joining an English club because uh, he's been he's been living in England for the last few months um, since he since he left the Palmi Tesco job um, in the winter. So you know he's been spending a lot of time acquainting himself with the coaching methods. He's attended a lot of sessions um, uh, at Chelsea's training ground because he has already some, well, a certain level of acquaintance with um, Roman Abramovich. And he has actually even called Abramovich the best agent in the world because he's got a lot of connections in the country, of course. And he's, he's said he's determined to study English well. He really wants to know the culture in the country before he even took on a job. And I think this is a refreshing attitude um, from any manager, but especially from a, a Russian manager or even any Russian players who had a similar attitude because there's such a culture difference. And, you know, we've seen a few big names uh, and, and playing terms, you know, Sharon Pavlichenko, um, stand out, who have come over and they've, in flashes, been good, but they've faded. 
I think they both well for him. And actually, Hull City being uh, relegated to the Championship, they will have parachute payments for their relegation from the Premier League, uh, which will be about £40 million apparently. So he'll have money to spend. He can be slightly more out of the limelight, which I think is good. And overall, I'm delighted to see him be bold to do this and to be given the chance to prove himself in another country. So it's really exciting to see what happens. And um, I'm sure we'll hear official confirmation in the next few days. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty positive about how this might turn out for him. You know, Andrew, the, the one thing that I'm perhaps honouring, um, you know, those who know me from podcasts know that I'm not the closest follower of the Premier League. Hull City from what I always hear, it's not an easy club to manage. You know, they, um, you know, a few, I think it was it six uh, year ago or so that the, the owner wanted to name the, uh, the Hull Tigers. Doesn't seem yeah. like the easiest situation to walk into. Well, no, that is, that's one area that's, uh, well, you would change if you could. Um, the, the owner, Asim Alam, is uh, an Egyptian and he's, He's, he actually does have a very, very deep connection to the city. He's, he's lived there for, I think it's almost 50 years now. Um, so I don't think anybody could say he's not got at least some of the best interests of the club at heart. But he does seem to be focused too much, like you mentioned, the branding of the club, which was just an idiotic idea of his. However, what you would say is that they appointing Marco Silva, as they did, I thought was a very adventurous appointment in the winter. Now, I, I think he got a hard time of it in the English press and moving to Watford, I'd say for him was, was just a horrific move. The, um, the, uh, Pozzo family, and they must be about the worst, most unstable owners of all time. So, um, I think in comparison, it's not too bad, but I think the thing about Hull is that the fans are very, very collective. They're very well organized together with their protests against Alam, but, I think it seems to have cooled down a little bit recently because it's uh, basically the name change. That was the main issue. The name change issue has um, has been well resolved for the time being. The, the fans just refuse to let it happen. And the fact that he's a, he's linking the club with Slutsky shows that you know he at least does have enough vision to look beyond just English coaches. I mean, we've seen idiots like Paul Merson on Sky Sports News saying foreigners just don't understand the English game and that sort of attitude infuriates me. So at least the owner does have an open mind to get the best coaches and I think it's uh, I think it's going to be certainly a case that he will be backed in the transfer market. Um, there, a lot of players will be sold so that will generate a bit more income t- uh, too. So I, th- I think the ownership shouldn't be too much of a problem. Um, it depends how demanding they'll be but I think it should be should be okay for him. Tim, what do you think of this? I mean, um, if I'm not mistaken, he's the first ever Russian to take a job in England. Um, what has the reaction been back in Russia? And what's your opinion on this? Pure excitement. Uh, the, the reaction is very exciting in the press, and I'm personally excited. He has, since he was a young up-and-coming coach, he has been compared to Mourinho because he doesn't have much of the uh, playing experience. He had a bad injury very early on in his career. Uh, so that's how he was compared to Mourinho, and he all been said, I want to coach in uh, abroad sometime, and he specifically was interested in coaching in England because, in his opinion, this is a, an interesting league for him. Uh, CSKA, 
like President Giner has a very tight connection with Roman Abramovich, so obviously that connection was explored by Slutsky, and even a few years back, there were some rumors of Slutsky maybe even coaching Chelsea sometime. So I totally agree with Andrew that he took a very, very smart approach. His English is not great, so he went there and he wanted really to, to, to put him into English football, into English life. He, <clears throat> he does a lot of um, classes in terms of English language and he hired um, 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 a, a tutor, or I don't know what's the, the correct way to say that, but he hired a person who specifically coached him football uh, English language. So there are, there, are, there are specific words he uses. And there was a show in the end of English um, season on um, Russian TV where he talked about... Um, about like a review show. He was a guest on a review show, a big interview. He talked about all the different teams and you can see, you can hear how he is deeply involved. He, he understands the tactics. He talked to tactics about lots of teams and it's, you can see that the guy is really, really focused on football 24-7 and tries to, to develop the knowledge of English League. I respect that a lot and I really, really hope that it works out for him. He gets the job and then everything goes well. The only issue with me, not it's not an issue, the worry with him because championship is such a tough league to get out. And obviously, Hull wants to get promoted back to the English Premier League. So it's just a very tough this division to get out. He doesn't have experience working in that environment. And I just really hope it works out for him and he will get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that's probably definitely going to be his biggest challenge, right? Um the transition from a 16 team league to, is it 22, Andrew, in the championship? Uh, 24. 24. 24 wow, that's uh, almost like yeah. a North American league. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Don't forget the winter, well, lack of winter break. Yeah. Um, that's going to be another major adjustment for him, too. Um, but you know what? It's, it's like we've, we've all said so far the fact that he's taken this sensible, patient approach building up to an appointment in England, that, for me, says that he's giving himself the best chance of making it work. I mean, obviously, that's going to be one of the first major things um, in terms of planning a whole season, um, is how to manage the difference in the calendar. The, the busy period over Christmas, over New Year, is traditionally when English football is at its busiest. And I, I personally do believe it's uh, it's a horrific mistake. Um, you look at most leagues around the world, uh, certainly around around Europe, have at least a two week break over winter, and an English football goes the opposite way. So that's a challenge. But yeah, twenty fourteen league, and it is like Tim says. Other than the the football national league in Russia, is probably the toughest league to to actually make head or tail off. So certainly a challenge. But I I'm quietly optimistic. Yeah, that's that's a lot of football to be played and. Um, a very short period of time. And I mean, you, you, you mentioned, and I, I want to move this part from Slutsky and his very exciting appointment. I think uh, Hull City fans can, can look forward to gaining a very experienced and a very successful coach. And, um, it will be interesting to see how he will get on there. But I want to move this over to Russia. And, uh, we've talked already about promotion and relegation and, you know, it's, Tim, of course, we talked about a lot about your team winning the championship, but it was, actually really excited at the other end of the table too and we finally know the teams that um, went down and we know the teams that went up and I remember when we chatted the, we sort of mentioned that you know the teams that would be in the playoffs in the promotion relegation playoffs so that is the team 
that finishes 14th and 13th, they have to go through those promotion relegation playoffs against the teams that finish 3rd and 4th in the Football National League, the FNL. Um, we talked about that, you know, the, the teams from the second division would have a hard time, you know, winning the playoffs, but that wasn't quite the case. And, uh, Skar Habarovsk actually managed to win their playoffs against Orenburg. And that is going to be a bit of a logistical nightmare now for the Russian Football Premier League, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, nine hours on plane, I think. Seven different uh, time zones, or like a say seven-hour difference between Moscow and Habarovsk. So the Moscow teams, if they go over to play a game, they might have to start the game 9 a.m., maybe 10 a.m., 11 a.m. their time. So it's it's a nightmare. It's It's, well... Well, you know, they earned their place to, to, to be in the league. Nothing wrong with that. It's, 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 it's all good. But really, it adds up with such an interesting term for the whole league. In prior years, uh, Luch Vladivostok, which is even further, was in the Russian Premier League, I believe, twice. And then uh, in 1993, a team called Akian Nahotka, which is a really, really small town, also made it to the to the top division. So it's not the first time when Moscow and St. Petersburg teams have to travel this far. But it definitely adds an interesting um, point of view to this to the next season of uh, FPL. Well, it could have been worse because Krasnoyarsk was very close of doing it too, and then you would have had, had two teams in that region. Um, <laughs> You know, just to put this in perspective, our time difference right now uh, from Munich to Vancouver is nine hours. So um, we're basically talking, you know, Bayern München having to play away games in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I, just to put this into perspective for people that don't quite, you know, grasp the distances here. But that's basically what this is like. And... Um, I mean, I remember when I wrote my PhD thesis on the professionalization of Russian football, Nahoda actually was an interesting case. And, um, as was Vladivostok because they played in, in the top flight uh, together. And there was a lot of controversy about, um, about how they got relegated. Uh, they got relegated at the same time in the early 1990s. And um, up to today, when you talk about it to sports journalists in Russia, they say there was always there was something fishy about that relegation tournament because the other teams in the, in the, the Premier League weren't really that happy about having to travel uh, to the Far East, you know, to the Pacific Ocean, because that's where these places are. And, you know, it'd be very interesting, um, you know, with Khabarovsk now on the top flight, how that's going to impact it and uh, how teams will, you know, go about this logistical challenge. I know with uh, Vladivostok, they would fly to Moscow and play three or four home games in a row and then go back, sort of similar to what the North American, what, what they do in North America with uh, road trips. But uh, the other interesting story, like a point of view on that, that Skakhabarovsk has been very good in, in the cup because... For example, this season Spartak went to play there, and Spartak was in a pretty good form, and they lost one nothing. And the player said that it was crazy to play the game at 9 a.m. in the morning, and it, it was tough. So that's why Habarovsk does so well in the cup because teams have to travel to them, 
it's tough, and uh, they play at home. So I I don't even know how to like. Of course, you have to look at the at the squad which they will have, and a couple of other things, finances, everything else. But I don't even know how to evaluate their future success or failure in the next season because I don't even understand how that works if you have to travel for uh, nine hours on a plane. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's tough. I do it quite often when I fly between Munich and Vancouver. So it's uh, I can't. But you don't play a game next in a couple of hours. Exactly. I I just um, (laughs) yeah. I just go with my friends. But (laughs) it's an entirely different story. But you know that that's that that is an important point because you sit in these planes and you know um, this these are not coaches. They don't they don't fly on their private planes. This Garkabarovsk is not a big budget team, so they have to probably fly. On normal airlines, and uh, anyone who's done modern, been on a modern plane, and done uh, travel like, traveling on modern flights, knows how tight these things are. And I can't imagine how tough it is. And I guess for big teams like Spartak, they will probably fly there with their own jet, so you know they will yeah. have a little bit of an advantage. But the, the, the logistics, when you're just trying to wrap your head around it, it's uh, it's crazy. I know, I know, Andrew, you, you your team, Tumen, they were in the league with. Uh, with Khabarovsk last year, and uh, yeah. in the FNL, this is really normal, isn't it? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, to give you, I mean, to give you guys an idea, or any of our listeners an idea, Chimani is literally on the western edge of Siberia, and Khabarovsk is the far eastern edge. And the number of games I've been to where I've actually had to grammatically correct, at least in my head, the banners that the away fans brought because it said. Khabarovsk fans and Luch Energia fans in Paul when there was one guy and literally and I mean one guy for Luch <laughs> Energia Vladivostok one away fan Khabarovsk one away fan and that's the biggest uh, that's the biggest nightmare of the, the Fennel but what can you do I mean the even regionalising the leagues which we've discussed on previous pods before um it can only solve a problem to a certain extent because, you know, if you make an eastern zone, you know, the way we've looked at it, it would only really work out if you let the eastern zone extend pretty much to cover most of Siberia. You're still talking five hours time difference and direct flights from Chimen to Habarovsk, I can assure you there are none. Um, so it usually involves flying to Moscow and then back all the way back to the Far East anyway. You know, I've got friends who who work on oil rigs um, off Sakhalin Island, which is, well, I think relatively speaking, not that much further than Havas. They have to fly two hours west to Moscow to catch a flight all the way past two men again and to the far end. So, yeah, God, it is a nightmare. It is a nightmare logistically. And I think what you mentioned, the collective away games, you know, if there are a few that are in the Moscow region, for example, I'd imagine that the fixtures fixtures will be designed that way. But there really isn't much else that can be done. It's not going to be easy for them. And if they stay up, it will be a feat in itself. But I, on the other hand, like you mentioned, I mean, it, they have earned their promotion. They deserve the right to be there as much as any Premier League club may complain. They've earned the right to be there. So, you know, just get on with it. It's all, all I can say to, to every team. So it'll be a challenge, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it for the novelty alone. Well, I remember, uh, Sakhalin actually had a team in the, in the first division and in the FNL not that long ago, right? So, um, you know, it, there's always, it's always worse. It could always be worse because imagine having to put that on your away trip as well. 
Um, and then get. <laughs> I can't believe it. We're, we're actually saying it genuinely could be worse, and it's true. It could be worse. It could be Saline. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you could have Baltica Kaliningrad promoted on top of that. I, I know that's unlikely, but then you're really talking ten, ti- ten time zones, um, which would be even further than it is from Munich to Vancouver. Again, th- I'd like to use that scale. Because that is the scale that we are talking about. That's the actual distance. And um, I think we tweeted out a tweet not that long ago on, on Football Grad Live. It's really worth looking at. And it, it just shows you the distance, how long it takes to drive. And, yeah, it's uh, it's a very, very crazy situation. Um, but, you know what, it will make it really interesting. And I think that uh, I think it's... It's going to be a team I'm going to follow next year just because I'm curious to see how they're gonna, how they're gonna do, um, with this, with this very logistical challenge. But, you know, I want to move away from that to, um, to Rostov and, uh, Bedeev. And, you know, he's a man that Andrew and I, we've, we've closely followed him now for some time, mostly because of the wonderful job he has, has done with, with Rostov, um, the last two seasons. Uh, as coach and then I guess as vice president or whatever you want to name it. But, uh, Tim, you mentioned, um, that it looks like he's going back to his former love, Ruben Kazan. Yeah, it, it's not official yet, but all the indication shows that, uh, looks like Kurban Derdeev will be back to Ruben Kazan, a club that he made, uh, champions twice, a uh, relatively small club historically in uh, Russian and Soviet football. Uh, which played against Barcelona and Champions League against Inter. And it was all his job, a massive success um, from him uh, to bring Rubin to Champions League and winning trophies. So um, there's uh, there's a couple of changes happening right now in inside the Rubin Kazan as a club. Uh, there's a new ownership. There's a company called Taif. Uh, they are now in charge of Rubin, and uh, Birdiev was very, very close. That's uh, Taif's owner, uh, Mantimir Shainiev, who was the first original president of uh, Tatarstan. So now Shainiev's son, Radik, is the new president of um, Rubin. And obviously that's a very, very tight connection. And um, Birdiev already left Rostov, so he is out of, out of Rostov. So he's looking for the next step. There's no obvious jobs in Russia right now for him, except... Uh, Rubin Kazan. So it looks like he will be back to Kazan, and I think it will be they will be again a strong power in the league if if everything goes as we expect. Yeah, maybe just to um, add to this, Taif is of course the the chemicals and petrochem- petrochemical company owned by the Republic of Tatarstan, right? Um, you know the the I know that the company or subsidiaries run Ruben Kazan, but in a sense, Ruben Kazan is a state-owned club, isn't it? Exactly. Like Putin said, that he doesn't want the um, he doesn't want any more the government money. Uh, I don't know how to. Yeah, I think it's the gov- like the government-owned companies to sponsor the football clubs. He wants um, them to be out of football, so kind of football has to be on paper, uh, be private now, owned by private uh, companies like. Kind of like Galiski. But uh, as you can see in this situation, it's not really that so clean. <laughs> and, but still, um, so even Taif is very, very uh, connected to Kazan's and Tatarstan government. Still, it's technically on paper, like an, um, and um, not a government owned club anymore. Yeah, but, but Tim, that club was founded on the basis. And I realized Ruben Kazan 
was was an independent or well, was a state-owned club in the time of the Soviet Union, but um, it was a relatively unknown team in the time of the Soviet Union, despite Kazan being a relatively big city. But the Republic mm-hmm. of Tatarstan as an entity got very rich after the fall of the Soviet Union, right? And um, mm-hmm. it's sort of the... How do I put this in a good way? It's the Qatar of the Russian Federation. <laughs> and uh, it's a very rich, resource-rich region. I mean, we're we talking oil and gas, but I've been to Kazan, and it's also aluminum, it's gold. Um, I think there's platinum mining there as well. So that it's a very, very rich republic within Russia. And um, Kazan is a very modern, forward-thinking city that has a very multicultural flair, but at the same time, Rubin is very much um, the child of the Republic, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they have the new stadium, like you say, they had funding to build a new stadium. Uh, they have a very successful hockey team. This mm. is the one of the best sporting regions in Russia. So that's why, you know, the return of uh, Berdyev to Rubin could be, again, could bring... Rubin back to the European and maybe even Champions League uh, contenders because he is a great coach. We all know that. Maybe it's not the most beautiful football he plays, but he gets the result done. He gets the job done. Uh, beautiful st- uh, stadium. They will have the money. They will have the funding to buy players. Already pretty strong uh, squad. So it is, it, is, it is exciting for Rubin fans and it's going to be very, very interesting what will happen in Rubin. Andrew, I want to go to you next because... I wrote an article last year when Ruben Kazan spent a lot of money on Gracia, the, the head coach, the Spanish head coach, and they brought mm-hmm. in a whole bunch of Spanish players. How do you think Bediev is going to approach that? Because obviously Gracia gone and the Spanish players and a, a lot of other players too um, that were brought in, you know, a lot of foreigners. How do you think Bediev is going to approach that? Because he does tend to like to work with you know, he does, he did have quite a lot of foreigners in, uh, at the Rostov too, but he does like to have a strong core of Russian speaking lads, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I'd even go further than that and say he likes not just that, but also he always likes to bring in his trusted players. I mean, look what happened with Rostov 18 months ago, um, uh, two years ago, sorry. Um, so, I mean, players like, I mean, Kristin Nabora moving to Zanit, I mean, we'll come on to that later, I'm sure, but that was a little bit of a surprise to me because that was one player I thought he would bring back to Rubin with him. Um, but, you know, players like Cesar Navas, um, even Bukhara. I mean, Bukhara's on great form. He, he played very well last night in the friendly win over Hungary. So, yeah, but it does like his trusted lieutenants, doesn't he? Um and I can see him gutting that squad quite significantly if and when he does take over. Because you look at the likes of Alex Song, Jan and Vila. To be fair to Vila, he did knuckle down eventually and, and realise once his move wasn't happening last summer that he needed to play well and regularly to make any future move come about. But, you know, you've got um, Samu Garcia. He's been basically dreadful this season. Um, Maxime Lestien... Uh, he and Alex Song caused quite a quite a stir, really, with their attitude and rumoured um, alcohol problems uh, coming into training, not applying themselves. Well, Berdea is not going to stand for any of that. And I, I really could see a good five or six fairly significant transfers going out um, from Rubin. So if I, I... The thing is, the difference between last summer and this summer, they were two 
slightly different revolutions, if we could put it that way. Last summer, a huge amount of investment from the uh, well, from the Tajikistan government into the club, bringing these new players in. Uh, it just didn't work. This type of revolution with more, I guess you could call it more streamlined decision-making with Taif being the investors and the owners. So um, I think it's it's going to be, a I think, a better process. They bring in Berdeev, who's a famous control freak. If they do, then he will want to be controlling everything, and I'm sure that's the only way he will accept a return which has got to be a good thing. So um, I think it's it's going to be a lot of transfers again this summer in um, in Kazan, and I think that's what they need. I'd be curious to see what will happen to the likes of Dimitri Polos and uh, Sada Asmoon. And Sada Asmoon, of course, is uh, controversial, right, because he forced his move to, to Rostov and, um, you know, a typical Bedeev player. Be curious to see what will happen to him. I, I saw a lot of chat up to um, with Asmoon going to England, maybe. Um, but you know, uh, I think I, we've spoken about this before, right, Andrew? That a move within Russia would probably be a better move for him at first. Yeah. And wouldn't it be curious to see him follow Bediev back to to Ruben Kazan? It'd be the kind of kind of transfer story that. <laughs> You know, would blow up the newspapers. I think. I'd be curious, curious to hear your opinion about that. I think. Um, oh, blimey! <laughs> Asmoon returning to Rubin. I mean, I think more or less most would be forgiven if it was alongside Berdeev. There obviously wouldn't be a, a chance in hell Asmoon would go back to Kazan without Berdeev. But it, what I find interesting, Manu, is that it seems like Asmoon's loyalty is has been to Berdeev specifically. Um, as opposed to a particular club. I don't think there'd be a problem for him emotionally leaving Rostov, uh, despite the platform they've given him, and he, he can't ignore that completely. Um, but I think he's he's a headstrong young fellow, isn't he, Asmoon? So if he did if he did move back to Kazan, he would he would surely only do so having spoken to Bedev and said, Look, I want to I want to play in Europe at some stage, but well, I mean what do you think um, you know, how ambitious do you think Kazan are going to be, Rubin are going to be? Do you think this is the best place for me? I think Bede would persuade him. Polos is an interesting one, really, because I've long, long held the view that Polos is, in fact, a more effective player than Asmoon as an all-round package. Asmoon is a brilliant header of the ball, and he's a, he's a great, you know, he snaffles opportunities, and he's got a good eye for goal, but I think Polos actually is a slightly more all-rounded player. And I think more teams should be looking at him, um, and even foreign teams, for that matter. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Asmoon come back. And I don't think it would be as awkward as people might imagine on paper, because because Bedev would be there. I mean, we're saying a lot of hypotheticals here. It relies a lot on Bedev being the man, genuinely, who will go back. But a lot of these, a lot of the sources I've spoken to close to the club have said, that basically, it's unofficially, it is done. It's, it's going to happen. Um, and I think we all expect that anyway. So, Asmoon coming back, big, big sign of intent that would be, certainly. Yeah, definitely an interesting story to follow. And um, I think Ruben Kazan are going to be very busy um, because, you know, it is a club of ambition. And we all remember that they, they, the hard time that they gave Barcelona a few years ago at the Camp Nou, one of the few teams from abroad to beat Barcelona at the Camp Nou, under Bedeev, and I guess they are, they're going to go places and, uh, trying to resurrect 
what is one of the proudest teams in the modern history of Russian football. But I want to move to a team that has uh, truly put a stamp on this offseason already and, uh, you know, fired a very highly rated prolific coach and brought in an even more highly rated, maybe some would even say a controversial coach, right? Senate St. Petersburg. They fired Luchesco and then they hired Mancini. And Tim, that must... That must have gone off like the atom bomb of all stories in, in Russia, right? Roberto Mancini is, is, um, not the easiest coach to handle, but he still has, uh, quite a magnitude. Yeah. As a Spartak fan, I'm kind of happy with their choice because, um, uh, because Mancini back in his, um, Days when he worked with Inter Milan and uh, Man City, he didn't have the best relationship uh, with the dressing room, and uh, Zinit doesn't have a very easy, uh, you know, dressing room. There's a lot of big egos, but at the same time, he's a great Italian coach, and he's definitely a top coach on the Russian level. So, um, not only Mancini came over to to Zinit, also, and um, they're old. Uh, I think it's his actual role as sporting director or maybe director of football. Uh, Fursinka, who was the, the president of, um, uh, Russian Football Federation for, for a little bit, he came back. So he, when he was the president of Football Federation, he wanted to hire Marcini as the, as the, uh, co- national coach team. That didn't work out. But now he finally managed to bring him to Russia, and now he's the coach of Zenit. So they already been very active on the transfer market. Uh, like Andrew mentioned, they signed Naboa from Rostov, which he is a very good player, very strong player on uh, the Russian level. Uh, they also brought a youngster, uh, Terentiev, from Rostov as well, who is from St. Petersburg and who pretty much went back home. And there's also a talk of returning uh, Maxim Kanunikov, who plays now for Rubin, uh, that he should be back to Zenit sometime next week. So v- this is interesting for me because, as I said on the previous pods, that in my opinion, Zenit already has so many players who would like to play, who would need to get playing time. They, bu- they brought three more players. So I expect a massive transfer window for Zenit because obviously Mancini would like to bring more players, um, which, which he likes. There was even talk about, uh, Wesley Snyder coming to play for, uh, for Zenit. Uh, so I'm very curious what will happen. At the same time, definitely Zenit hasn't been in uh, Champions for the past, Champions League for the past two seasons. Uh, they will be in Europa League again next year for such a massive club like them. This is a, this is a big, not strategy, but it's definitely, they're underachieving. So I'm pretty sure that Zenit will be very, very, very strong this season. Yeah, and Andrew. <laughs> Monsieur Lucescu, my good old friend. Um, <laughs> um, we've been talking about this since Christmas. I remember when we had Vadim on um, around Christmas time to, to talk about Monsieur Lucescu and, uh, you know, he only covers Ukrainian football and we said that Lucescu was in trouble back then and he was in disbelief. And... Uh, it's actually happened. He's managed to not manage to get into the Champions League, which given the amount of money that they're spending, um, Tim, you say it's tragic. And I think that's actually quite the right term to use because, you know, they, the club is very much built on that, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
do you do you think that you know Lucescu underestimated this, and do you think that Mancini will have a better handle on this, Andrew? Well, I mean, to answer your first question in one word, yes, I I've um, I I was very surprised that he found it so so difficult. I honestly thought at the time it made a lot of sense. I thought uh, one of the most experienced coaches in Eastern Europe with a good knowledge of the transfer market, particularly the Latin American transfer market, you know, could help, you know, bring through some young players, turn a profit rather quickly. And he's a known disciplinarian. I thought that's what they needed after Andrew Villas-Borges' um, rather tempestuous reign. I honestly thought it was, uh, it was a good appointment, but how wrong could we be? And yeah, I think underestimating it is key. His, um, I mean, you and Vadim highlighted in that pod that we we did then how he quite often does criticise um, picks fights in the media with different, you know, blaming different reasons for why his teams are not being favoured, particularly the officials. And he he went into the same mode in Russia, but it just didn't come off. You know, it came across as a as a bitter old man whinging, um, saying, "Oh, look at all the referees, all Moscow based, and that's why we're not getting decisions." Well, I'm, I'm sorry, Monsieur, but if, even if you're not getting decisions with the players you have, you shouldn't be having much trouble getting into the Champions League. Um, and yeah, he, he just failed. It was just too big for him. I mean, you know, you look at the profiles of managers before they arrive and you think you know how it's going to go. Um, I mean, I think in my, you know, my club, Manchester United, and when Louis van Gaal was appointed, it wasn't entirely dissimilar. Van Gaal, great experience, some of the biggest clubs um, in in the world, and he's a known disciplinarian as well. I thought that's what we needed, and he was just dreadful. He just didn't get the club. And I don't think Luchescu ever got the club either. Um, I mean, personally, you talk, mentioned the transfers earlier, Tim, and for me, one of the biggest surprises, um, I mean, not Luchescu's fault here, obviously, but the fact that Danny has been left uh, let go. I know he's, um, he's an old plays 33 and he did have a long injury that he was only just recovering from but he, he was he was excellent when he came back towards the end of the season that was a sort of figure in the dressing room that a new manager could really do with because Danny is well respected um, but yeah I think it's another absolute guaranteed transfer whirlwind coming our way from St. Petersburg and uh, Mancini he's um He's, he's got a task on his hands. I would say this is his toughest job yet. Um, but anyhow, we'll see how he goes. Yeah, the, the transfers, I mean, you mentioned them, Tim, but that can't surely be the end of it, right? I mean, uh, Senate's transfer pockets are almost limitless in a way. I mean, they have to, have to comply to financial fair play uh, to one extent or another, but, you know, the pockets are so deep and Mancini will, will want to build his own squad um, so there will be definitely a lot more coming. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm still con- concerned. What are they going to do with, with all those players they have right now on payroll? So I assume there will be some loans maybe. But like you're absolutely correct. They have to follow the financial fair play. They can't just go outside and buy a whole bunch of players. They need to sell and they need to justify their um, their spendings and expenses. So... Uh, but even right now, I'm just looking at their squad. There's so many great, strong players. How you, even if you let half of them go, I don't even know how you can fit all those crazy egos in, 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 in a squad. It's a very strong squad with, um, 
And again, like maybe maybe this time they will really go for Europa League so they can uh, rotate the squad. And but uh, but still, it's it's a, it's a strong squad and interesting to see what will happen because uh, we expect them to be probably a definitely not probably definitely title contenders next year. Well, keep in mind the top three teams will be in the Champions League or get Champions League qualification next season in, in Russia, right? So that will already make that proposition a lot easier. But, you know, mm. this you, you raise an important point here because you're talking about egos and there are already egos in a room. And uh, Mancini himself is an ego in the room. And he has taken over projects before that remind me of this one. Um, I'm thinking Manchester City and I'm thinking Inter Milan, right? Mm-hmm. And there's so many parallels that I can see here between those three. Um, mm. You know, rich ownership, erratic ownership at times. Um, lots of players that are very talented, but don't always seem to comply very well with team building. And it's, it's interesting that Mancini gets dragged into these projects or tends to take these projects despite the fact that he tends to also fall on his nose. So I'm not sure. I mean, there's, I, there, there was a lot of hype about this, but I'm not sure Mancini is the man who can um, sort of funnel the energy into the right way and what is already a heated cauldron. And I think that is something that Sinit may regret. Um, I might be proven wrong in the long term, but, you know, he's not the coach that brings stability. When I look at the coaches that were successful at Sinit, I look at someone like Spalletti, who is a guy that, um, despite being temperamental in Italian, has that ability to sort of calm things down. And I don't see that with Mancini. So I am I, I wonder if this is almost an ego transfer by Senate to show to the rest of Russia, look, we can still sign guys like this. We can bring in the Villas Boas. We can bring in the Mancinis. We can bring in the Spallettis. We can sign the big name coaches. No one else can do this in Russia. And I don't actually know if that is the right approach. Well, I mean, Manu, you know, to be honest with you, I think you do make a good point about him having an ego. But I know I could well be proven wildly, wildly wrong here. But I actually think, I actually think it's almost a positive. Because to take on a role um, at Zenit, where it really, really is a huge, huge club, You've got to have you've got to have enough ego to to be almost a perfectionist in some ways. So um, you know you can get swallowed up by the club if you're not a big enough ego. Um, and I think yeah, it's, it, it is potentially fireworks. I, I definitely take your point. And I think uh, it, we could well be proven. Well, you could well be proven right in that point. But I think um, it is a gamble. But I think it's a gamble worth worth taking. You mentioned the extra Champions League place. And that is a critical, critical difference for this season. I would say with three places available, I, I'd be amazed if they didn't make it into that. Um, but, I mean, you know, you mentioned about the, the quality of the squad. I would actually say the quality of the squad is not as good as I thought it was. You know, the likes of Hernani and and Robert Mack, for some reason I have this thing against Robert Mack, he really irritates me. Um, he's been playing more than Johan Molo, and Johan Molo is one of the finest I definitely would keep. I think he's an electric talent and one of the genuine game changers, but you know, look at others like, um, I don't know, Luka Djordjevic, I just don't even see the point of him being in the squad at all. Um, Mauricio, at the time, I thought was a good signing, but is he really going to... Um, 
is he really going to be that that replacement for uh, Axel Witzel? Uh, I, I really don't see that happening. So a lot of players need to be moved out. But I, I do think Mancini's got the ego to do that. And I, I think that's going to be an important part of it. Um, it's, it's volatile, but then that's Zanis, isn't it? Zanis is a volatile club. So perhaps in a crazy way, it might be, it might be the right type of man. Yeah, it'll be an interesting one to follow. I think Mancini will feature prominently as we go through the, the off season and then of course into, into the next season. Um, but before we get there, uh, Andrew and I, we're going to be, of course, there for this, the Confederations Cup. And this is, uh, last topic before we wrap this up, but, um, Russia had their, well, I guess they have been playing test games basically since the Euros, but they had their first pre-Confederations Cup test game last night against Hungary. Chachesov has announced a preliminary squad uh, for this tournament, and he, I believe it was 30 players, right, guys, that he has announced. He has to cut this down to 23. Um, but, you know, we lost... Sobnin, who I've written a really, really interesting article on, on footballgrad.com because he was heavily linked to Schalke, um, just, just these last few days. But I guess with the injury, um, that's not going to happen. We believe it's uh, going to be likely up to six months, maybe even more ACL and MCL. You mentioned, right, Tim? Um, yeah. so that's going to be pretty bad. But uh, overall, this was actually, uh, the performance last night was one of those few games in recent months where Russia actually did convince. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, you know, you know what I was pleased with um, when I was watching the game? I thought that the, you know, it wasn't as if Russia completely overran Hungary. Hungary had a few decent chances. They had header that went inches wide and, Akin Feyev actually did have a slight brain freeze at one point and it looked like, um, I don't know the Hungarian striker's name, but he, he sort of, he challenged Akin Feyev for the ball and it was rolling towards the goal line. But, um, uh, Georgi Jikia made a great goal line clearance. Um, but that's kind of the point I'd like to make. The three goals, well, the first one, Fyodor Smolov won the goal. Well, I mean, that was just magic, wasn't it? I mean, just, it was pure brilliance. The guy runs in the halfway line, takes on three players, and finishes with his left foot, not his strongest foot. Um, just such confidence in the guy. Um, but the fact that Chechesov has nailed his colours to the mast finally with the formation he's going to play with three at the back, um, it worked well because, you know, when Hungary did threaten, they had the extra man in defence to, to cover. And it, it's a simple thing, but it works. Um, I was pleased as well that Alexander Semedov playing at right wing back. I actually do think Semedov is going to be a very important player for Russia over the next year, with Confederations Cup and World Cup, because he can. I think he can play that wing-back role. He doesn't need to be as, as pacey, perhaps, as, um, as uh, Mario Fernandez if he recovers for the well, recovered for the World Cup, of course. But um, I think the system works. There are enough players in the right positions, and even without Artem Zuba being injured. Alexander Bukharov came in and, and did a, a good job. So uh, it was it was a good performance. And it's a, the only real friendly that I've genuinely come out of feeling really positive about pretty much since the Euros. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy. It was about as good a result as we could hope for. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Tim? I mean, going from this game, and this is, this is basically the second last test. They're playing Chile, I believe, on Friday. 
Um, very curious to see how they get on. Of course, we'll have a preview on footballgraph.com um, as well on that game. But taking a look at this game in particular, how much more confident do you feel about Russia going into the Confederations Cup? Well, unfortunately, I'm still not sure because we have, um, like we said, quite a few key injuries. Like, to me, the big... Honestly, I'm using this word again, but the tragedy was uh, Roman Zobnin's injury, which happened in this game. He yeah, well, he will be out of the Confederations Cup. He will miss the beginning of season with Spartak. And for me, this is just a sad story, not only from playing, just from personal perspective, because he had such a great season. He was in the form of his life, and that was a great chance for him. Just not going to work out for him. Zuba is also out with his knee injury. Zagoyev is uh, not there. So... I'm not sh- like it's gonna be tough for even for Confederations Cup. This is I uh, completely agree with Andrew. This is the first positive game under Cherchesov since Euro 2016. It's the first really like the first time when the press was cautiously optimistic about uh, the the performance. I still don't think that we have a, a, a strong personnel in, in the back. Um, yeah, the whole squad. So I'm, like I said, I'm, maybe I'm still a little bit pessimistic, but at the same time, I'm cautious because I, I, I'm not sure. I really support Chichesov because I think he does the right things. He, he's focused. He really, he knows the league very well because he's been working here for a number of years or 10 years probably in Russia as a coach, as a, as a sporting director. He knows the league. So he picks the players who maybe not the, the most obvious choices. For example, like a good example would be Ruslan Kambolov from Rubin. But at the same time, I don't think that, you know, compared to Germany, compared to Portugal, our squad is not as strong. So obviously I will be rooting for Russia, but I'm uh, slightly cautious and maybe even a little bit pessimistic about upcoming performance. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of these, and of course we've been rolling out the, the previews on the individual countries. Um, we have Chile, New Zealand, uh, and Germany out, and I, I know that Chris Williams is working hard on Portugal, and Andrew, I think you're doing Russia very soon as well, right? And um, it's been interesting reading these previews, because the, the, the different the different approaches, uh, I know most of the countries are coming with the, the A squads. Uh, Germany, of course, not. They're not bringing the A team, they're bringing the B team, uh, mostly because the country has a big focus on youth development, and uh, a lot of the players you know, are either rested or being sent to the U21 European Championships. That's yeah, Mara, just yeah, I listened to your podcast uh, to your when you talked on Gagan Press and you talked about this so-called B squad. Yeah. I was amazed. If this is your B squad, I don't even know what kind of squad Russia has right now. It's actually our B two squad because you know what? the B squad has <laughs> it's been equally shared between the U twenty one and the um, the team that's going to be sent to Russia. It's, oh, money, stop bragging, stop bragging. <laughs> it is, it is, you know, but you know, this is, this is, this is yeah, something it that, is true. that Joachim Löw has been very adamant about that Germany is going to this tournament with an eye on winning the World Cup, not with an eye on winning the Confederations Cup. It's, um, this, this, this tournament is very much going to be used for the country to get adapted to what it's like to play in Russia. And to get adapted to some of the distances. I mean, I wrote in my preview, preview today, Germany's group stage games are going to be in Sochi, Kazan, back in Sochi in six days. That's a lot of traveling, right? So, you know, I think for a lot of these countries, 
um, they will get a slight edge. And I think Germany is actually doing it smart because they realize, oh, this is a lot of traveling. This is a country that is, despite being in Europe, is going to pr bring us the exact same challenges that Brazil did three years ago. And we'll, we'll better adapt and we'll better learn. And plus, you know, um, we're resting eight of our main players for this tournament, eight or nine even. But two or three of those might go down injured anyway. So the guys that are in the squad now, they, they will, they might get a chance to actually feature next year's tournament, right? So you might as well expose them to this. And, um, so Germany is for me a, a road. It's, it may be the biggest surprise package because they, they, they of course, it's still a very talented squad, but it is at the same, at that time, they haven't really played together in this composition before, right? So it will be interesting to see them. I read Matt Hawkins' Chile preview too, and it's it's going. I think for me, they are almost one of these other teams that could really um, take a handle on this. And I think G Germany and Chile, they're going to be, of course, very strong in this tournament. Portugal as well. They're going to take this massively seriously because they, that's a trophy that they can win. And I, I'm. Very concerned for Russia because I can't really see them competing them um, with any of those teams at the moment. So, you know, last point really before we wrap this up, but how do you guys see them doing, Do see Russia do in this tournament compared to these sides? And do you think there's a realistic chance um, to win this tournament? I, I take give this question first to Andrew and then, uh, uh, Tim, you can give your assessment second. Well, I mean, realistically, I'd be amazed if Russia did win the tournament, but I'm, I'm just slightly, slightly on the optimistic side of it. I think, um, I think in the group stage, the New Zealand game has to be taken seriously because they're, they're not an, a walkover side that everybody assumes they are. I watched them playing against uh, Northern Ireland a few days ago and they, it was incredible how they didn't score two or three goals. Um, in that one, they've got one. Of, they've got a few players with foreign experience, and they will be tough. They will be they will be defensive, I guess. Um, they've got a big guy from Chris Wood who top scored in the championship in England this season. Um, so that game they've got a target. And but if they do, which I fully expect them to, um, Mexico might be focused a bit on the Gold Cup in the summer. Um, you know, Portugal will be the toughest game, I think. But there's no reason why Russia won't make at least the semi-finals. And then, you know, who knows? You know, if um, they come up against Germany, then the German side, whichever one is picked, may not be the most experienced, and Russia may just may play very well. And then suddenly they're in the final. So I'm expecting Russia to get out of their group stage um, at the expense of, is I suppose Mexico. Um, and uh, we'll see from there. So that's 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 how I see them do. Yeah, and Tim and you? Well, I'm a little bit more pessimistic uh, than Andrew. I I think it will be very hard for us to get out of the group because Portugal and Mexico are tough, and I'm not sure if the, uh, Russia can uh, unlock uh, the extremely defensive New Zealand. Obviously, I will be supporting Russia, and I will be watching all the games, and I will be with all my heart supporting them. But I'm just slightly... The, the previous year was very, very tough. And there's, like I said, after a year and a half, well, after a year of Chichesov being in charge, this is the only positive game. So I'm, I'm, I'm just being cautious and pessimistic, but I hope, obviously, that Russia will make it out of the group and we will um, try to give a fight to the Germany B7 or whatever the, this team, which is still amazingly strong. 
I think that's, uh, I'm, I'm not even sure Germany will finish their group first, to be honest. I, I wouldn't be surprised if really? you say, <laughs> yeah. Have you seen your squad? Manu, are you serious? Marco Tersteggen and goal. You have Mustafi, Kimmich, <laughs> Rudiger, you have Draxler, Emre Chan. Are you crazy? This is amazing. <laughs> oh, I remember an active German. We go into every tournament with a little bit of angst, you know? So we'll see. I, 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 I be, Positively surprised if Germany win this tournament. I think that some of the other countries will just take it a bit more serious than we do. But, you know, we'll see. Um, once it gets going, of course, you know, Andrew and I will be there. Um, I'll be flying over there. I guess Friday in a week. It's coming up very quickly. I'll be there for the opening match. We've got fully FIFA accredited. Uh, Andrew and I will be doing pots from there. Doing as much coverage as we can. Pots, articles, everything. Uh, it's going to be on the football grad. Network, Football Grad Live, Twitter will be buzzing during that time. And then, of course, the the three pages associated to it will be bringing you tons of content. So uh, bear with us. Um, will be lots happening and we'll be trying to, you know, keep you as much updated as possible from this tournament. But, you know, I want to wrap it up here. Um, Andrew, where can what have you been up to and where can people find you? Well, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Andrew M I J Flint, and yeah, I'll be doing the like you say the Russia preview for this. Um, I've done a couple of other podcasts actually um, about the Confederation Cup and Russian football on Outside Right, um, Outside W R I G H T, and I'll be doing one with Low Limit Football next week. So I'm trying to step up the podcast game really, um, and hopefully doing a lot more um, football grad podcasting, like you say, over Confederations Cup. So that's um, that's my plan of action for the time being. Oh, awesome. Definitely make sure to follow Andrew. Um, there's always interesting stuff coming out on that end. And Tim, what's going on in Vancouver? Oh, life is great in Vancouver. Uh, people can follow me on uh, Twitter at RussianTim61. And uh, for the new listeners, I also run a punk rock radio show called Rocket from Russia, which could be found on iTunes and uh, rocketfromrush.tumblr.com. Yeah, and definitely make sure to, to check that out. You know, I know there's um, a big music scene happening on, you know, people that listen to the podcast. So if you if you're not just interested in football, and you like punk rock, definitely go check that out. Anyways, I've been your host, Manuel Veff. You can find me at Manuel Veff on Twitter. Uh, give me a follow, shoot me questions. Uh, I've been very busy with 1860. Um, you know, worst case scenario there has happened. Complete meltdown at the club. We've dropped to the fourth division and uh, I've been live covering it here from Munich. So that's been mostly going on in my Twitter account. But tons of other things too. Um, at Football Grad Live, we, we, as I mentioned, the Comfort Cup, but we have the latest transfer rumors and troll stories. We have a profile up on Peter Bosch, the new Borussia Dortmund head coach. Um, so yeah, go check all of that out. Other than that, new podcast coming, Golazzo tomorrow, um, gig pressing again this weekend. And then Football Grad, of course, uh, will be back to our weekly show. So yeah, until then, goodbye.
Let's be real. Dealing with tangled cords can make it harder to do your hair. Break free with the new Unbound Cordless Auto Curler from Conair. Get the curls and waves you want, anytime, anywhere. It's designed to let you experience the power and freedom of beauty in motion. No cords to hold you back. You get your curls and waves your way. Unplug and be unbound. Loose curls, tight curls, beachy waves. The Unbound Cordless Auto Curler makes it easy to get the looks you love. Love your look. Live Unbound. Available at conair.com and search Unbound. We can get anything delivered from furniture to toilet paper. And now, adult beverages with Drizzly. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly's giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code EASY5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. One gift that never gets returned? Trick question. It's three gifts, beer, wine, and spirits. And with Drizzly, you can send the gift of drinks right to your loved one's doors. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and holiday spirits, then get them delivered right to that lucky someone's door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code JINGLE at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.